0: Hello everyone, Trish Geis here, divorce and pre-mediation coach. Welcome to Shit I Learned From My Divorce, a show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. 12 years of trying to live my life while my former partner was trying to destroy it. Trish Guise is not a legal professional nor a licensed mental health professional. The information she provides is not intended to be legal advice and is intended only for informational and entertainment purposes. Some of the topics on the show may be triggering for some, so please use caution and your own discretion. Topics discussed on the show may not be suitable for young children. I do this show for a couple of very important reasons. The first one being that I feel we need to normalize the behaviors and the craziness that occur during a separation and divorce. It's helpful for both the people going through a divorce and those around them to understand what to expect and how to handle it. Going through a divorce is like nothing else that you will ever experience in life. Number 2. I want to prompt you to start thinking about things in a different manner so you don't have to make the same mistakes I did. I also hope to fill some of the knowledge gaps you may have and provide you with some ideas or solutions for what is troubling you at the moment. And most importantly I would love for you to walk away from each episode just a little bit stronger feeling a bit more validated and a little more settled because you have a bit of knowledge in your toolkit so I recommend after listening to each episode take a few minutes and think about what you've heard what resonated with you do some things seem a bit more clear to you now or do you need to do a bit more digging The whole purpose of my show is to get you to see things perhaps in a different light or for you to slow down or step back a little bit and make sure that you're clear about what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing it as opposed to reacting. Okay, with that in mind, let's get on with the show. With me today is Dr. Thomas Jordan, who is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. One of my favorite cities in the entire world. He is on the faculty of New York University's postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis. He is the author of Learn to Love, the guide to healing your disappointing love life, and the founder of the Love Life Learning Center.com. Dr. Jordan specializes in the psychological treatment of the unhealthy love life and has been studying and treating them for over 30 years.
1: Hi, me, Trish. Thank you.
2: We have lots to talk about today. As I was telling our listeners about your book, I, and I've mentioned to you, it is probably one of the most impactful books that I've read because there was so much to unpack and to learn and things that I like the way you presented it, all the ideas were very clear, concise for professionals, laymen. It was just so well done. And so I really want to talk about that today. But first of all, to get started, I'd love to know what inspired you to write your Learn to Love Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life.
1: Yeah. Two things, basically. One was i have been working here in New York City for about 35 years uh, treating patients that complained about love life issues, either causing their difficulties or as a byproduct of their difficulties. And I started to see recurrent patterns. You know, Uh, people weren't always aware of uh, the repetition that was taking place in their love lives, you know. And uh, and sometimes quite tragically, I mean, a person could when you look at their love life experience, replicate the same thematic difficulties over and over again in multiple relationships and get to the point of resignation. So I started seeing that happen quite a bit in my treatment of adults. So I started collecting information and uh, I started seeing patterns. So it inspired writing the book because I wanted people to become uh, alerted to the consciousness necessary to see these patterns. And begin the process of changing. What also helped me write the book is I changed my own love life. Between the ages of 17 and early 30s, I had what I like to call a disappointing love life, making the same mistakes <laughs> over and over again. And even when I anticipated that the person I had chosen was similar, I imagined they were. So the imagining was kind of scary. It's like, wow, what happened? And I began to realize that a lot of learning had taken place and that learning was fundamental to really understanding what was going on in our love life. So a therapist I was working with here in New York City back in the 90s helped me realize that I had learned some things growing up in my family that weren't working in my love life. My dear old mom taught me a few things that didn't work in my love life. And I was repeating them over and over because I was unconscious of what I had learned. So once I became conscious of it, I was able to make some changes. And I've been married for close to 30 years. So I wanted to see if I could translate that into some steps that people could take to enter the same kind of learning process.
2: Well, you know, I think it's so key. And I know with the clients I work with, it's like they're looking for that how-to or that Bible, because so often I hear, why do I keep making the same mistakes? Why do I keep choosing the same person? Is it me? Is it them? Or people will think and assume mm. it's the other individual. And then lo and behold, we're at it again. Same, you know, history repeating itself over and over. And, you know, I myself too, like we've, a lot of people have spent time trying to be introspective and figuring it out. But if you don't have a guide, you're kind of just, it's a shot in the dark. Where's your book? really lays it out nicely in my opinion as to where to start. Well, first of all, to understand where your love life is learned and then to go through systematically how you can go about something that you call unlearning. Maybe we should start off with how do you define love life and how does that concept come about and and then maybe talk a bit about where where we do learn mm-hmm. what we know about love lives and how yeah. we make those mistakes.
1: When people ask me for a definition of love life, my standard definition is Any and all relationships involving the emotional love, right from the beginning of life. We start our lives off with a love life. As soon as you open your eyes and you see good old mom, you're in love, right? And (laughs) so the love that we experience changes over time, hopefully. And uh, as it matures, we're learning and relearning all kinds of things that apply to our love lives. The catch is that a lot of that learning is unconscious. So the family of origin is one of the most intense classrooms that we will ever be in, ever in our lives, because most of the learning that takes place there is by observation. We can observe relationships. We can use the experience of being in a relationship with someone. People even sometimes report instruction, you know, elders in a family teaching children you know, what to look for in a love relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of learning that goes on from the beginning of life. And that learning about love relationships is how I define the love life. So your love life starts at the very beginning and goes all the way to the end of your life. And, you know, I start off in the book in the preface, if you remember, saying this is not a book about love. Love is a wonderful emotion. We can't do anything about it. Comes and it goes. It's Hopefully we'll have that experience several times in life. I mean, who knows? You know, it's a unpredictable, uncontrollable emotion. And I hope it stays that way, but a lot Ooh. of mystery. What my book is about is the relationship we form when we fall in love. If we form a healthy relationship, all well and good. If we form an unhealthy relationship, it can destroy the love experience that we're having. And that's that's my concerned because I think there's things that we can do about the type of relationship we set up because that's based on a learning experience, according to my research.
2: I find that so interesting, too, because I know so many people don't really think consciously of what kind of relationship they do want until they don't have that. Mm -hmm. right? And they don't really think through how they want to be in a relationship. We all just sort of fall into play. Everything falls into place because of what we, as you said, what we've learned in our lives. What's but, familiar?
1: You know, what's Familia. familiar? Exactly. The, root yes. of the word is family. Familiar. Right.
2: Exactly. Which you know can be good and bad, but I I find the way you talk about this whole process in the book brings everything to the forefront, so people can consciously. Think about what it is that they want, what's not working, what do they even know, what have they learned about their love life, which I love because I just feel like so often in our lives we're just going by rote. We spend more time perhaps choosing a trip than we do choosing a relationship or how we're going to be in a relationship.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We work on everything else in our lives. And I always say in the podcast interviews that I do that I'm here to declare, let's work on our love lives like everything else that we work on. And that involves understanding what we've learned, what experiences we've been exposed to that have taught Mm us lessons about love relationship. Now, I've listed in the book 10. I now have 12. I don't know, it it might get bigger and bigger, but (laughs) uh, experiences like abandonment, abuse, dishonesty, dependency, neglect, rejection. These are the type of experiences that I saw getting into people's love lives over and over again in my office. And so the list grew. I've added intrusion and dominance, which are two other types of unhealthy relationship experiences we can have in life that teach us things. And when we're young, we learn these lessons unconsciously, as I've said, and they become the blueprint that shapes our love life experience. Now, uh, where do we find that in the mind? I've I've called it the psychological love life because mm-hmm. I'm interested myself in what goes on in our minds that we bring to our love uh, lives. That's that's my interest because I think permanent changes, permanent healthy changes, can be made in a person's love life if they change something in their psychological love life. That's mm-hmm. that's my position. It's not about changing things in the outside world so much. It's on the inside world that really make the difference in terms of the health or unhealthiness of a person's love life. I offer the psychological love life. Not all the experiences we have in life get into the psychological love life. So it's based pretty much on an individual's experience. But knowing what's in your psychological love life becomes a very important exercise to start to See how unhealthy patterns reoccur. When I went into the learning and tried to break it down a little bit further so I could really see the issues involved, beliefs, behavior, and feelings came to the forefront. These experiences I've mentioned, for example, if you've had, unfortunately, an abandonment early in life by one parent or the other, that experience can teach a child that abandonment happens in one's love life. I've actually heard adults say, you know, all men are dishonest, all men abandon a relationship. Make these declarations without awareness that they have a certain belief as a consequence of these experiences. So when these things are just accepted unconsciously, they're very active, they're not quiet, they're they're shaping experience. Behavior, what type of people we're attracted to, what type of people we invite into our love lives. It can happen in different ways. We can find people who abandon us or we can abandon the people that we find or both. I've met individuals where both was done. They abandoned the person in one relationship or abandoned by someone else in the next relationship. So there's a variation there, but it's basically controlling the behavior that occurs in our love lives. On the third level is feelings. What type of feelings get recreated over and over again? With abandonment, you'll notice loss comes up in your love life quite a bit over and over as if that feeling is dominating a person's love life experience. So when you consciously look on those three levels and see what's going on in your love life, you've been able to obtain a lot of very important information that permits you to enter what I call the unlearning process so you can begin to take this thing apart, do something better.
2: So if I could take you back to something you said at the top of the podcast and something you and I discussed uh, at a different time in terms of how this book came about. and, And something you said I found so fascinating when you had mentioned that based on what you learned, particularly with your relationship with your mother, that you assumed that all to a certain extent, all women would be like this. And then in a relationship where the woman that you were with was not like that, somehow you saw her as that.
1: Yes, yes. Yes. My my mother taught me that all eligible women were dependent, controlling, and self-centered. She struggled with those qualities in her own life. So when I became aware that this is what I've learned, that's the scary part, is that I found people with those qualities, but I also found people that didn't have those qualities, but I imagine they did. And that's, to me, it illustrates the power of what's been learned. Right. That it's in control of your love life if you are not conscious of it. So the unlearning method I propose is to become aware of these learned patterns so that one can begin to shake it up use that consciousness as a tool, and that's why I have a a, a three-step unlearning method. Want me to talk about that now, the three-step unlearning method? Okay, all right, so the unlearning method is basically based on the assumption that if something is learned, it can be unlearned and something better learned or relearned. Sometimes we forget stuff that we have to remember. Honesty and intimacy are related that's that's a that's a realization we might have early in life that life experience tends to make us forget right yeah. <laughs> but we have to relearn it right uh, so the first step is obviously to begin with consciousness to be able to identify what's been learned from the experiences one's been exposed to so i find that when a person starts to entertain this kind of consciousness. And it usually begins, and I recommend that people begin, with an understanding of what's repeating in your love life. So if you put your love life on a timeline, you might be able to see things show up over and over again. Give you a classic example. A woman in her early 50s showed up many years ago when I was beginning this research. She told me that she grew up in a home with an alcoholic father who was violent toward her mother. Her and her siblings watched this behavior. When she became an adult, she married two violent alcoholic men and her third boyfriend was becoming emotionally abusive. Mm -hmm. At that moment, I said to her, kind of innocently, just as an observation, do you think there's a relationship between growing up in your family and what's happened in your love life. And this is an intelligent, very bright person. She looked at me like, what? (laughs) She had not made the link between the experiences she had earlier in life and what was replicating, repeating in her love life. So the repetition is where you begin. Replication is another word that I use to understand what's being replicated, experiences that are being replicated in one's love life. So that Mm -hmm. helps define it. The third R that I use in structuring this consciousness I'm talking about at the step one level is recreation. Now, recreation is an interesting word. And I suggest recreation because it points out that we're making something happen over and over again.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It's not so much something that's doing something to us. We're recreating these unhealthy experiences. Now, once you get over the shock of that and you kind of think about it a little bit, you realize we're wonderfully creative creatures, we Mm -hmm. human beings. Look at the room I'm in. Thousands of people were involved in creating these furnishings and all these images. We create our own love lives in a great measure. And it's important to understand that because once you've understood that and accept it, you get an empowerment, get an ability to make change in something as important as your love life. Because it's quite tragic, as I said earlier, to repeat the same mistake over and over again. Step two is to take that consciousness. Now, it's not just about becoming aware. You have to use it now. Step two is a challenge. You begin to challenge yourself. How does this pattern show up? You begin to see it. You're in situations, same type of potential partners come to you. You start selecting the same. Patients have said to me, you know, I went out on a date last night. I think it's the same kind of guy I'm always ending Mm -hmm. up on a date with. Or I'm doing the same thing I've done in other relationships and I have to stop the The awareness and the ability to challenge oneself is a way of taking these experiences and shining a big light on them. It's like, we're not only going to shine a light, I'm going to interfere when they try to come back. I'm going to interfere when they try to control again and again my love life experiences. So you're shaking them up. You're making those unconscious things. You're taking them out of the closet. You're making them conscious. And Mm that begins the unlearning process because you're not allowing something to have the kind of control it used to have over your love life. Step three is what I call correction. The correction that's the easiest, I think, to work with is to select the opposite. The opposite of abandonment is commitment. The opposite of dishonesty is honesty. The opposite of neglect is devotion. The opposite of self-centeredness is mutuality. These ideas, these opposite ideas, these opposite experiences help people conceptualize, imagine how they might move their love life in a new direction, do something unfamiliar. Right. Right. And it's not easy to do that. I've had patients say to me, you know, Dr. Jordan, I've selected unhealthy, unavailable men for the longest time. I just met a guy who was available and he scares the hell out of me. What do I do with him? (laughs) I have to learn how to deal with, I didn't learn how to deal with availability. It wasn't present in my parental marriage. It wasn't present in a lot of relatives I have. So I have Uh to deal with this now. How do I develop the understanding, the skills, the experiences And that's a wonderful process to begin, because once you're asking questions like that, you're working on your love life, your psychological love life. It's a beautiful thing to witness.
2: Well, I very much agree that it can be very exciting. It, It makes me think of, you know, when everyone falls in love for the first time, it's a different experience than that. We're not just relying on our chemicals or our hormones running through our body. We're actually consciously... Uh-huh. Constructing something and I love that idea of constructing or reconstructing because I find so much in life gives us experiences where we feel like our control has been taken away or or minimized and and especially in divorce situations so many people are afraid afterwards and never find love or they won't trust other people or won't trust themselves. Absolutely. And I can imagine when they go through this process, they might think, "Well, if I'm dating somebody unfamiliar, I can't trust, or or even I just can't trust my own my own perceptions and my own my mm-hmm. own gut." Whereas I think with your 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 series of steps, it's so systematic that you will be able to trust it because you will have con- you haven't just you know learned through osmosis and continued. You're actually deciding, "Does this work for me? Does this not? What is it I want?" And determining what I love too is determining. Where did these things come from? You know, after I read your book, I started analyzing myself and what I know, or I thought I knew about love, or what I have in my life, based on like where did that come from? And it really was interesting to me because it just kind of opens your eyes. It's like you've been—I felt like I've been asleep for years and years and years. And uh-huh. so I want people to get from this process is to really take control of it, so that yes, things happen. Yes, not every relationship works out, but that you are very systematic about it and understanding what drives you, what really drives you, not what, what used to drive your parents. And that's absolutely, what you learned.
1: Absolutely, you're you're bringing the mind and heart together.
2: Yes, you I know? love that.
1: They, they, they need to get married, those two, you know? <laughs> so that they work together and they spawn an integrated love life where your emotions are there to inform you about chemistry and attraction. That's yep. good, that's mother nature. But your mind is also aware that you can have chemistry and someone might not be prepared to have a healthy relationship. Now, that's a little bit tragic. It's a painful thing sometimes to be attracted to someone, but realize they're not in a position to have a healthy love relationship with you. So that might be someone where you have to really put a stop to that and move on and look for someone who's better able to have a relationship so there's more than just the chemistry going on here that's important if people want to have a healthy love life and you you said the ingredients you know you're you're making decisions you're making choices you have consciousness you're working on something these are all words to help describe the fashioning of a healthy love relationship where you have a measure of control about what's going on. It's just not like a a ping pong ball going from one relationship to another and collecting unresolved hurt until you get to, and you were kind of talking about it, my word for it is resignation. You get to the point where, like you said, you don't trust the ability to be in a love relationship. You see love as hurtful. Over and over again. And you know, it's very tragic. I think that the divorce rate, you know, 40 to 50% for first divorces, uh, uh, second is 60%, 3rd as I understand, gets upward of 73%. These climbing divorce rates indicate to me that people are making the same mistakes over and over again. That's what that means. So it's really tragic. Uh, I, I wrote, I have this website, com I've had it up since 2012. Uh, I wanted it to be an online library that people could Ooh. find, like real articles, not hearts and flowers necessarily, but real mm-hmm. stuff, you know, the, the solutions, the problems. And uh, I have about 300 plus articles up there now. And every once in a while I write an article that gets a tsunami of commentary, right? And I, yes, yes. I look for those because I, I learned from them. I wrote an article a while ago called Living Without Love in Your Life. Whoa, what a wave came in on that. I uh, So large and important that I changed the post that the article twice as a consequence of what I learned. But I also learned that there are many many people out there in their 40s, 50s, 60s plus that I've mm-hmm. really lost faith in love. And these are good people, the experiences I read, they're they're heartfelt people, they're people that are concerned about their love lives, but they're mm-hmm. much too worried that if they get back in love, they're going to generate that hurt over and over again and it just feels too much to handle. And I am I'm so concerned about that population, because if it's a learning experience that we're talking about, it doesn't take 20 years of therapy to change that. Right. This that's is the something, thing. if you're aware of it and you see the pattern, maybe with a little guidance, maybe with a little support, if you need it, you can make dramatic changes in your love life by knowing where to focus and be able to realize what's been learned and what can be unlearned. So
2: exactly. there's more
1: hope there.
2: Well, and speaking of your website too, that uh, check the show notes for the name of, of the book that we're discussing and also the website, because there are a ton of good articles in there. And if, if you don't mind, I'd like to delve into some of them too. I, I do have a question first about defensiveness, and then we can talk about some of the articles. There were quite a few where I thought, oh, we have to do a bunch of podcasts because I need to ask him about this stuff that, that that I hear so often. But defensiveness, and you talk about defensiveness in your book, and I poured over that section because I find defensiveness is such a common reaction for people, particularly in divorce. And I wanted to, you know, you to talk us through that a bit. You know, why we become defensive, and what that defensive reaction tells the world about us, and what's going on within us.
1: Yes. Well, you have to understand that in the disappointing love life that I'm talking about, this repetitive, replicating, recreated love life that can be unhealthy and in control, it tends to generate hurt. Mm -hmm. That's the best word for it. Hurt is the fundamental feeling of being disappointed, expecting love and not getting Mm -hmm. it. Your heart is bruised, heartbreak. These are different ways of thinking about it. But what happens in a person's love life when they're struggling with a disappointing love life, with unconscious learning and control, is they collect hurts, okay? And when you collect hurts, you want to protect yourself from hurt. You don't want to be hurt over and over again. And that's where defenses come in. Defenses come in as a way to protect ourselves from hurt. Well, we, all human beings, know how to be defensive. It's sort of inborn, you know. Uh, we can learn fancy defenses yeah. from people we grow up with. Sure. <laughs> we, can, we can be in a lineage of defenses, yeah. everybody <laughs> using this defense, you know. But um, it's very easy to construct defenses. Problems with defenses, they interfere with the ability to love and be loved.
2: Right. They're yeah, like barriers.
1: Different. They're like walls that set up. They interfere with intimacy, and the mm-hmm. intimate relationship is the most powerful way to take care of the feeling of love. So defenses mess around with intimacy. They make it hard for mm-hmm. people to be intimate. Uh, familiar defenses when people try to have a love life are, for example, being in a love relationship with distance.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: You know, only picking distant partners or not being available enough to really have a deeper intimacy. There are a lot of people that practice that particular defense or generating conflict all the time, which uh, puts up a lot of anger and anger is a more powerful feeling than hurt. And it allows the person to, you know, be in and around love, but don't feel vulnerable. And that's what defenses do. They protect the person against vulnerability, which people associate with hurt. Uh Uh-oh, vulnerability, get that out of there because it's going to be hurtful. Uh, And another obviously big defense is avoiding love altogether. That's the biggest one. Now, here are some of the specialty defenses. You ready? Yes. (laughs) Getting into a love relationship and trying to change your partner.
2: Oh, yes, everyone Uh, knows that one, yes. I'm going to make him love me. (laughs) That's right. Uh,
1: I'll turn her into a loving woman one of these Uh days, available person. (laughs) I've been in this business for 35 years. I have never met anybody who changed anybody, okay? Yeah, I hear that. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. (laughs) Um, What you get is R&R, and I don't mean rest and relaxation. You get resistance and resentment. That's what you get when you try to change someone. Uh, right. My old friend used to say, the secret to a good relationship is finding someone whose faults you can live with. <laughs> <laughs> that is you know, so true. If you can't right. live with them, get out of there and find That's someone right. a little closer to what you're looking for. So, exactly. uh, and And then, of course, there's a few other specialty defenses like... How about this one? Trying to find 100% compatibility by substituting one partner after another. Oh, not good enough. Next. Oh, not good enough. Next. And then you burn yourself out eventually at some point. And then, of course, the one that's coming up a lot these days on the airwaves is polyamorous love life with multiple partners. Now, the Mm -hmm. problem with that, and who am I to be in judgment? No. The problem with that... From my perspective, is it limits the intimacy.
0: Now, mm-hmm. if you don't
1: mind that, then fine. But you can't have the kind of depth of intimacy with multiple partners, because it's kind of dividing something up, as you might imagine. But these these are some of the more common defenses that people use to try to regulate the vulnerability and hurt that they anticipate.
2: Do you know what I find interesting about that too? Is once people recognize where these behaviors come from. So the defensiveness is a result of feeling vulnerable and wanting to protect oneself from that. I see that as not only helpful to the person who let's say is reading the book, but also helpful for their to understand their partner better. Perhaps then knowing where this comes from, even if their partner let's say hasn't read the book or isn't attuned to this, there will be a better understanding of perhaps why their partner has become defensive. So instead of getting upset over their defensiveness and it both going back and forth, understand a little bit better where that may be coming from and to uh-huh. maybe help them understand where that's coming from with the vulnerability. I just think the more information we have can not only help us, but also help us in the current relationship with the other individual and understand where they're coming from. Absolutely. Not to say it's okay to be like that, but yeah, it's, I just find Absolutely. that so, so full, so it comes full circle. Like it, we can really yeah. help. Do you think it can help in areas too? As you're as talking, I'm thinking, and I know we're talking about our psychological love lives. But do you feel this has ramifications for people's relationships, let's say, with their friends or colleagues or their children in a different way? Yeah,
1: yeah. these patterns don't necessarily stay in one place. You know, they can come up in different relationships. For example, I work with a lot of people at a particular corporation. And oftentimes there's authority issues that come up with Mm -hmm. management. And some of those authority issues can kind of look like some of the things that have been learned earlier in life, you know. And so you might see it in certain ways, you know, like, like for example, a common one is rejection. If you've experienced, unfortunately, unhealthy experiences of, of rejection early in life, that rejection may come up in relation to a love relationship. It may come up in how you work with a boss, for example, mm-hmm. being very sensitive to Not being chosen for something, for example, and then you find yourself reacting a little stronger than should be to that. Mm -hmm. And you know that that means you've got some unresolved hurt going on. So it doesn't necessarily stay in the love life. You know, these are Mm -hmm. patterns that can go everywhere. I focused on the love life because love life, there are two emotions that we really need to pay closer attention to, I believe, in the clinical world, helping people. And that is love and grief. I mentioned that in the book, that love and grief are two emotions. We don't get a lot of training. We don't get a lot of information or education, yet they cause so much suffering in life. A large percentage of my practice all the time are people trying to grieve, trying to resolve grief, trying to accept the death of someone, for example. And during these pandemic times, that was very, very Mm -hmm. common, you know. Uh, And the love life, of course, is also an an area of of suffering. You know, one of the inspirations, I mentioned him in the book, this guy, I hope I say his last name right. Oh, my wife will kill me. Uh, Leo (laughs) Buscaglia. (laughs) That was a good try. Uh, uh, He uh, was a professor back in uh, in the 70s uh, in the University of Southern California, and He was a heartfelt fellow, you know, emotional guy. And uh, one of his students committed suicide as a consequence, I think, of a love life issue. So he was very moved by that, very distraught. He went to the administration of the university and said, I have to teach a love class. My students don't understand love well enough. Uh, They laughed at him. Leo, Leo, come on. Uh, don't you have anything better to do? You know, <laughs> pick something scientific to teach, right. right? And he he persevered. They finally gave him a room. No credit. You can teach your love love class. He taught it for four consecutive years. 100 wow. students enrolled each year, standing room only. Mm-hmm. He was so moved in the first class that with, with misty eyeballs, he said, what am I going to teach you about love? I mean, Oh my God. He said, we'll learn together. He said, we'll That's learn right. together. So he wrote a, 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 some books about love as a consequence of that experience. But my question to you is, if I went to the University of Southern California and I looked at their curriculum, do you think there's a love class on that curriculum? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Definitely I believe the said not. To say yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Why not? Right. 100 students, standing room only. Doesn't that tell you something? We are in yeah. need of this information. You know, we are in need. Yes. Uh, look in the area of grief. Uh, the kinds of things people get told as children.
2: Mm. Oh. Uh, you know,
1: be tough. Don't cry. Buckle up. You know, uh, what? crying in grief is a natural experience. It's part of the healing that takes place when we lose someone we love. So the true opposite of love is grief. That's a point I made in the book. If you lose someone, you grieve if you love them. Mother Nature ensured that. So when we suppress grief, we're not doing ourselves any favors. That creates symptoms in many instances. It's not a very healthy thing to do.
2: You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because what I find over and over again, not so much in my personal life. I have to give kudos to the men in my life, despite how some of them have been raised in previous generations. They are quite adept at, you know, eschewing the whole, you know, come on, be a man, be tough, don't cry. They, they, they've kind of eschewed that. But you know, I look at other men and I think they're really, it's really difficult for them because grown up, we all have the same feelings. When we're sad, we want to cry. There's a biological reaction, Uh same with grief. And to dismiss that and to shove it down. Uh And then what I find oftentimes that I hear in certain relationships where then men have learned to be quite stoic, no matter what their biology tells them. Then some people misconstrue that as oh they're cold fish or they're not very feeling or they're not loving. They're you not said
1: getting- the key word learned.
2: Right, and then the only emotion that's acceptable for them to exhibit seems to be anger because that's manly. But uh-huh. then they don't learn proper ways to process that. I find, and that causes, as we know, so many problems. And we're not we're not helping anyone, particularly men, with that. And so so glad you're mentioning that because. The fact that you are a man, but also that you have this structured way of doing things, I'm hoping will be much more palatable for men. It's this is across the board, it doesn't matter how you identify, these are these are things we learn over time. We have the same biological urges and whatnot, and that everyone needs love and they grieve as well. And that is a natural thing. You can't undo that. And I feel yeah. badly for all these people that have been have been taught. Either by osmosis or been overtly taught, you cannot do this. I can't imagine what that must feel like to have to shut that part off of your own biology or your own self.
1: Yeah, um, I have learned over the years of practice that, and I've had the gratification and the privilege to be in the room and watch very masculine men become sensitive. Masculine men that learn as middle aged men often enough. That's when it happens. Yeah. They learn how to be tough and shut off their emotions earlier in life. And at middle age, when they marry, they have children. The demand to know their feelings, to communicate yes. their feelings increases in middle age. So now they're in my office working with feelings, trying to put language to their emotions, right. to their feelings. It's a wonderful experience to be in the presence of a masculine man who learns how to talk about what he feels. And the idea, what's important to communicate to this type of man is that you don't walk out feminized, which right. is one of the big issues, right?
2: Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. Men sometimes
1: mm-hmm. You work out in a deeper masculinity, in a more flexible masculinity, mm-hmm. a masculinity where You hang on to that identity of strength and you show the capacity to be open, to be vulnerable, to be loving. And you can go anywhere along that continuum. That's a beautiful thing. That's true strength. I was taught earlier in my career by some uh, uh, mentors in my profession that true strength is not anger, rage, violence. True strength is knowing what you feel and being able to communicate it. That's the true strength in life. And by the way, Mm. it's not gender bound. That's for anybody, any human being who can acknowledge what they feel, put it into language and use it to conduct the business of being in the interpersonal world and the world in general. That's true strength with a lot of benefits health-wise as well.
2: If listeners get nothing else out of this podcast episode, which they will get lots out of, that is one of the most poignant things I've ever heard. It's so true that that says that's I'm going to remember that about strength. Because I remember when I was raising my, my little son, he was probably, I don't know how old he was, maybe four or five. And we were very open about emotions and things like that. But he had trouble articulating how he felt, much to what you're talking about, that men, middle-aged men learning to put words to their feelings because they don't learn that. Whereas as women and as little girls, we're very much socialized to uh-huh. consistently put words Absolutely, to it. Absolutely, right. I, I remember a child psychologist giving me a sheet of paper with all of these, I guess we'd call them emojis now, but all of these faces. And so mm-hmm. my job was to help him when he was struggling to articulate because sometimes then he would act out physically Uh point to the face Uh that represented what he felt. I thought that was so, so smart. So when you're talking about middle-aged men doing that, and I can see them doing that too. And I, I, what I wonder is what's going on in their heads. Is it once they are able to articulate safely what they're feeling or even know what they're feeling and name it, I wonder what that feels like inside to them. Is it relief? What is it like? Do you know?
1: Well, I think, I think it feels like an expansion. I think it feels like some new area has been found, some new, it's a skill now. I I tell men, talking about, I tell everybody, but I I tell men that when you're in a love relationship, one of the most important things you can do is speak about your hurt feelings and understand the hurt feelings of your partner. That Mm -hmm. experience, that interaction, is in the baseline of what it means to be in a love relationship. You can't be in a love relationship without experiencing hurt. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be, you know, bumping into a person a certain way, disappointment, and being able to resolve these experiences, unintentional hurt, I'll call it that, right? Are very important in terms of, Cleansing a relationship, keeping it healthy, helping it grow. So being able to communicate that hurt and have it acknowledged, being able to understand the hurt of the partner. Did I hurt your feelings? Tell me what you're feeling. This kind of simple dialogue with someone that you love is an experience that opens up a relationship to be able to be healed over and over again. And what happens when you do that is you're ensuring the endurance of a relationship over time, that that's what it takes. Uh, People oftentimes call it the work on on a love relationship. You're working by solving the problems that often have hurt experiences as a part of it over and over again, building trust, building a sense that we can do this together we can cleanse our relationship of the kind of hurts that might accumulate let's not let that happen let's communicate to each other these things that help us resolve so communicating about hurt feelings that is number 1 on my list in terms of keeping a relationship healthy over time you alluded to another thing i like to tell people i talk about the psychological love life oftentimes for that in between space, you know, you come out of a relationship, out of a divorce, out of a breakup, you have a little time, get to know yourself. People often say, I'm going to take care of me for a while, you know, mm-hmm. have some some me time. time you know, I'm, going to, yes. I'm going to like, you know, I don't want a relationship right now. And I always say to myself, good, this is a time for you to learn about you, improve what you're offering by studying Mm -hmm. what's inside of your psychological love life, et cetera. So we've talked a little bit about that. But if you're in a love relationship, it's good, I think, to understand the psychological love life of your partner and Mm -hmm. yourself, because those two psychological love lives are going to interact in your relationship for good or for bad. So to be able to develop a dialogue with someone, when I first got married, right,
2: <laughs>
1: here I go again. When I first got married, right, my wife, Victoria, right, every once in a while, my mother would show up
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> in, in my mind. Yeah. And I yeah. would kind of put it on her, you know, like, uh, like you're acting like my mom. In my mind, that was my assumption. And my wife, who saw it differently, uh, would remind me she wasn't my mother. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so
2: interesting. Every once
1: in a while, uh, when we had an interaction like that, and it just happened at the beginning of our relationship, she, uh, she would say, I'm not your mother. <laughs> and here are the reasons <laughs> why. I can
2: relate to that. It happened
1: from time to time, and we—I think she got it down to a code. You know, she'd walk away, and from the other room, I'd hear, "I'm not your mother." (laughs) (laughs) And so, I humorously, of course, but also seriously, I realized that okay, I'm, I'm off track. Yes. I have to get back on track. Something in my psychological love life is coming into my relationship in the present and causing trouble. Because, you know, the past is a beautiful thing in a picture book, yeah. on a wall. right. But when it's messing up present experience, mm-hmm. piggybacking on what we're doing now. It can start trouble. So in my line of work, it's important to separate the past from the present.
2: Another key point. Yeah.
1: Sometimes we have to put the past in the past and settle it. A settled past is a wonderful thing. You know, you're conscious of it. You're aware of it. You're not letting it mess up the present or the future, the other two time zones it likes to mess with. Yes. So you're you're like, okay, past. I know where you are. I've settled you. I accept you. Stay there. Don't mess with my present. Yes. And that's like an that. important thing, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, Because, right. you know, I can relate to that too. How many, everyone can really. It sounds like, you know, what you're saying is that you can't, stop that from happening unless you're aware of that Absolutely. that's what's happening. There it right? is
1: again, consciousness. Yeah. Consciousness love- and learning are two of the big assets that we're talking about today, Trish. We're talking about two powerful capacities that human beings possess, consciousness and learning. And they're very much related. They're together. These two things help us have a psychological life that is going to be healthier if we practice Mm -hmm. understanding what we've learned and achieving a certain amount of consciousness of life. So those two things help us, you know, help us. We're we're psychological creatures, you know? We're we're biological creatures, we're social creatures, but we're psychological creatures, you know? And if our psychology is not known to us, if we're in mm. the dark about it, um, if it's just doing things we're not aware of or give we haven't given it permission to do, you know? right, it right, can wreak right havoc in our experiences, especially interpersonal ones, our self-esteem, our mm. interpersonal life. So it, as psychological beings, it's important to know What's in the psychology? What's going on in my mind that contributes to what I experience in everyday life?
2: That's so key, you know, to break it down to it is truly a science. You know, as you're talking, I envision in my mind somebody trying to perfect their golf swing and trying to understand the physics of it and trying to break it down and understanding this, not the psychology, but the steps as to what is, is 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 creating the hook or the slice or whatever it is, uh-huh. and not just trying to ram their way through. It's the same right. thing as you're talking about where to try and understand the psychology of where things are coming from and to understand that even if you make great progress, there are times where you might allow that has to come sneak back in again, and it's not a one and done situation, correct?
1: It's sneaky, it's sneaky, you know, <laughs> especially when it's unresolved.
2: When right. it's unresolved,
1: right. it makes trouble. I mean, people think. I tell my patients all the time, what you keep in the closet is not quiet. Yeah. Forget it. What you keep in the basement is not going to, it's banging on the floor. It shows up at night when you're asleep. It's going to be part of your life until you open the door and settle it. And settling it oftentimes involves accepting that something's happened, grieving the loss of something um, realizing how something is in control of experience. These are all ways that we settle the past so that we can have the kind of consciousness and choice we need to have to have a healthy life in the present.
2: You know, and I think too, there's a lot of people that are talking lately about toxic positivity and, you know, they've either learned or they're, that is as a child or even as an adult, that's their way of coping is to you know rose color glasses, as I say, and everything's going to be okay, but that again doesn't deal with the unresolved issue, doesn't deal with what's going on. In fact, it's very similar to me in my mind to what you're talking about just tamping everything down or shoving it in the closet and closing the door really quickly. <laughs> that it isn't going to come out like we're it seems like we're also afraid to feel these days, you know, to feel fear, love, grief, doesn't matter what it is, we're trying to anesthetize ourselves. It seems, and I think in order to live and enjoy. We have to understand there's the bad with the good, you know. So I like that when you talk about the love and the grief. It's so hard when someone close to you dies, and it's, it's it can be just just devastating. However, you had that love to miss, right? I wouldn't absolutely. want to go through life and not have that just to save myself the grief.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And in a way, grieving is taking care of and loving yourself. It's resolving something inside. It also ultimately kind of settles the love you felt for the person that's no longer with you in the case of a death. The grieving process is the process that allows us. It's like almost like I, I like to think of it as I have a couple of metaphors that I use with my patients who are grieving. One of them is for a man, I use a woman at the door for a woman. I use a man at the door. Gay, it could be a man. Gay, it could be a woman. I mean, it'd be anybody. But the point is, if you're, say, me, I'm grieving and I'm struggling with my grief, beautiful woman would show up at the door with flowers and knock on my door. And I go to the door and that's grief. And she says, can I come in? If I welcome her in, she sits Mm -hmm. beside me. She gives me the flowers she listens to me, she comforts me. Then she looks at her watch as he says, that's enough for today, I'll be Mm. back later. And she leaves and she will come back to the door over and over again, stay for less and less amounts of time until one day she never shows up again. And that's how grief is experienced when it's welcomed. If I don't open the door and let her in, she is the nastiest person you could possibly imagine. <laughs> She'll climb in the window, break yep, down the wall, under the door. Oh, And she doesn't bring flowers, okay?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I like that metaphor. So, so it's very
1: important to welcome <laughs> grief. And also another metaphor I use is that your reward for grieving openly and letting it happen and not trying to block it is You get a high-definition video of the person you loved and is gone that you get to keep in your memory, and you're going to enjoy every time you visit that video. Mm -hmm. You can close your eyes and you can be there one more time and envision those experiences you've had with that person. And the feeling you have is one of settled grief. And the experiences reconnecting with them on a psychological level. And I think that's a beautiful thing.
2: I do, too. I do, too. Very much so. And that's that's the beauty of your message, I find, too, is that, you know, the psychological hurt, the, the hurt that comes with love at times, there are some beautiful things to it. And your whole process is something that, when I was reading it, it didn't seem onerous. It didn't seem like, oh, God, not another self-help book that is going to take me to do through all this. It is something that we should be taught, I think, as kids almost, you know, before you even start dating, I think it would be great to investigate for ourselves some of these issues and to be really enlightened early on in life instead of, you know, when we're in our 30s, 40s, 50s, looking at this and trying to understand right, or undo. Right. I think yeah. this this uh-huh. could be, you know, so maybe that should be your next project is to figure out <laughs> a way to, <laughs> to you
1: know, book you know the when, I, when I was growing up, the closest I came to instruction was what would this be? Early 60s, Waffle Sunday. My father making waffles on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Me and my two older brothers, I was about eight years old. My brothers were about five and seven older than I. And uh, we were sitting there and my father's making the waffles. My mother's serving them. And my father turns to us and goes, looks at my mother and goes, I hope you guys find a woman like your mom to marry someday.
2: <laughs>
1: oh wow! <laughs> yeah. And I remember that moment. You know, it's like he was. Yeah. Yeah, my mother smiles like, "Yeah, you know, like okay, guys." Exactly. Like, like and that's it. Was it. A, Love lesson it was done. a bit of instruction, you know. It's yes. A, it's like a. It's like the message was, well, for good or for bad, you know, yes, this right. is the it's model, this is the model. Exactly.
2: <laughs> I know, as funny as it is, you just think, oh my gosh, the things we learn as kids, no wonder we have so much trouble sometimes as adults, but, but, <laughs> but you know, they, everyone does the best that they can, right, back then. Absolutely,
1: but- absolutely, and it's up to us as adults, uh, you know. Understand. I, this is another important point. Thank you for the possibility of mm. saying this because I, I love to tell people this. In the book, I talk, I even have a picture of my mother, my father and myself when I'm a year and a yeah, half I old.
2: I like that. And yeah.
1: I, I chose that picture because it, 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 I think it, it starts, it, it's my beginning, my journey in learning about love relationships. And I chose my own self as a case to explore because then I Mm had not have to deal with the confidentiality issue of anybody else's love life. So, you know, I want people to understand that I believe that when we become adults, you know, you can love your parents. I love my parents, but that doesn't mean I can't understand them. That doesn't mean that everything they taught me was useful or healthy. Understanding my parents in a certain kind of way, and I think I might have indicated that in the book, has deepened Mm -hmm. my love for them. To see them as people, real people who grew, did the best they could, learned, uh, got stuck had their own limitations, which became part of the teaching unconsciously Mm -hmm. and so on. So once you've unraveled that and you've taken what you need yourself to be able to, say, work on your love life, like what we're talking about today, that doesn't mean your love for your parents diminishes. I think it increases. It becomes more realistic. It becomes deeper because you get an appreciation for who they were or they are as real people in your life.
2: Well, I think we should end on that note, because that is a very, very, very poignant point, I think, to make and, and just resonates with a lot of people, because I know a lot of people struggle with that and, and the relationships with their parents and seeing them as real people, because they are, they're no longer just mom and dad who know everything. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to share with the, the listeners before we sign off for the day?
1: My wife and I offer telehealth consultations for anybody who is interested, reads the book, would like a little guidance or support as they go through the steps. So my wife and Victoria are available for that these days. So telehealth is a little bit more convenient here.
2: Can you tell us where we'll find your book as well, too? I want everyone out there today to get your book. The
1: books on most book distributors uh, primarily on Amazon.com and And on my website, I think there's also a little more information about the book and Victoria and I as well. So,
2: Yes, and so the book is Learn to Love, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life, and take a look at the show notes. The information will be there as well as Dr. Jordan's website. Is there any other convenient way for people to get a hold of you or is the best way to get a hold of you through your website?
1: Through the website is my phone number as well as my email address is there as well.
2: Well, it has been such a delight. And I hope if you're willing, you'll want to come back again in future because there's so much more I want to talk to you. You just let me know
1: I enjoyed it.
2: (laughs) Excellent. Well, that's wonderful. Thanks again.
1: Okay. Thank you. Take care.
0: Shit I learned from my divorce is written by me, Trish Guys, and produced by Barry Guys. Audio editing and sound design is by Barry Guys. I would love to have you tell a friend or a family member about this podcast. And you can help me share the important concepts I cover by leaving a rating and review of Shit I Learned From My Divorce on Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stay up to date on the latest from me or to contact me, visit my website, trishguys.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-G-U-I-S-E. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, at trishguys, and on Facebook and Instagram at Trish Divorce Coach. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Shit I Learned from My Divorce with me, Trish Guys, Divorce and Premediation Coach. Until next time, be good to yourself and to your kids.